Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey, and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. My name is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here, and thank you so much for listening these, uh, these past few weeks as we have gotten right into season two of this podcast. Uh, where I have been talking with so many great inspirational people. And I hope that, uh, that you guys are subscribing. You can find the show on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, its home base, Podbean, or TuneIn. And please share, please spread the word and everything about this show. Rates and reviews mean so much to the show. So any sort of uh, support that you can give to the show, especially on Apple, would be very much appreciated. It's always a, gr- a great thing to have a talented friend. But then all of a sudden you, be, you become a fan of theirs. And that's when you get to see them really, really blossom. And I am so thrilled to have one of my friends who I am a strong fan of here with us this week. Uh, William Demerit and I first uh, crossed paths at Marymount Manhattan College. And uh, when we, we were still able to keep in touch during that entire time that I was still in New York and thanks to social media all the time afterwards. And I have gotten to see him experience graduate school, regional theater, and even break into commercials and then acting on HBO movies. And then uh, to lend his great voice to audiobooks to the point where he was even nominated for an audio award. And as, a, as an actor and a dialect coach, the man just keeps on giving back to, to this community. And now... He's even, uh, he's even gone into this great realm of podcasts with, a, with an extra diverse hook with, uh, by combining Instagram with it. It's, uh, he's got a lot of projects on his plate. It's going to be a thrill to hear all of them be, uh, be broken down. And it's my privilege to welcome my friend, William Demerit. William, how are you, sir? Hey, George. I am well. That was a that was a heck of an intro, man. I, I'm very grateful for it. I hope I can live up to it. And it's good to see your face on Zoom. Uh, we're doing this on yes. Zoom, listeners. And to hear Absolutely. your voice again. Hey, it's great to hear yours too, man. It's great. And uh, 
it's it's just been I, I still I still can't believe like how how much you've been able to get done in this amount of time. It's uh, it's been it's been a real thrill to watch every you know like new project you know come your way and the fact that you've been able to make the most of it just uh, that says a lot to about you. So um, for starters, let's talk a little bit about that uh, what I mentioned before the uh, the podcast slash Instagram project that you have going. Great. Tell us uh, a little bit about that. So, so it's still in development. Um, right now it's called The Secrets Project, but that may change. Uh, so there's a really wonderful playwright named Lauren Gunderson. The last three to five years, she's been the most produced playwright in the country. Um, she wrote this amazing show called The Book of Will, which is about what happens to Shakespeare's troupe after Shakespeare dies and then trying to keep his text alive. It's a beautiful love letter to theater. So it's, it's Lauren, um, it's Jamie Ann Romero, who is a, a wonderful actor who I know from Oregon Shakespeare Festival, who's, she was on a couple episodes of The Punisher in season two and she's done a bunch of regional theater and she's amazing. And Martine uh, Kate Green Rogers, who's a dramaturg and a professor and uh, Reggie D. White, who is an amazing multidisciplinary theater maker and a teacher at NYU. So we're all getting together. We're all basically Lauren gives us weekly homework. Uh, she gives us a writing <laughs> prompt. She gives us a writing prompt every week, um, and it all has to be true. Uh, we wrote on origin stories. We wrote on first love. We wrote on apologies, which was an interesting one. And we'd like to create a podcast that is based on these confessionals mm -hmm. where the audience gets to know this cohort of artists. And each week there'll be a different prompt so you'll know what's coming. Mm -hmm. Each week, the form, to borrow from Bruce Lee, the form is no form, right? So right. some episodes may be more dialogue heavy, some may involve soundscape. And then the Instagram portion would be a filmed component tailored to, the, to a highlight of that week's story in a different format, right? Some might be more documentary style, some might be more filtery and, and weird. And we also wanna involve the audience in it. So we're hoping that we get enough listeners where the audience will send us their own personal stories that we can then dramatize uh, in different ways. Again, some might be monologues, some might be conversations, some might be like a short play. So nice. we wanna make, we wanna really give the audience a sense of community in a time where it's really hard to find community. And mm -hmm. I've sort of listened to podcasts in my life very piecemeally, like here and there, but I find yeah. now in quarantine, it really gives me a sense of calm and community. And like, I know these people who are in my headphones and in my brain. So we're hoping to be able to do that on across a couple of different platforms uh, with this secrets project. Excellent. We want to hear the audience's secrets. Oh yeah. That sounds, that sounds terrific. That sounds terrific. And, uh, Definitely, you know, you already know my voice, you know, from, from all these years. So even better, you know, like now you got, now you got it in podcast form. And so, uh, and there are 45 other episodes that you get to enjoy as on, on top of this one. So yeah, it's, so let's, uh, let's take a little trip back. Let's, you were talking about origin stories. So let's talk about yours. What was okay. that lightning bolt moment for you that made you say, I want to get in the arts. I want to do that. I want to be that. What was that moment for you? I don't know if it was a lightning bolt moment so much as a, you know, regular barrage of snowballs were just kind of sitting in the lightning for a long time. My dad was a jazz musician. So okay. I grew up 
in an artistic household. He was also a, a visual artist. And my mom probably missed her calling. She was a medical research secretary, but she probably should have been a jewelry designer. Mm. Um, so I have all these fuzzy memories of being five years old and perched up on some bar stool in Harlem listening to my dad play and then me being serenaded by much older women making me very uncomfortable, <laughs> which probably says a lot about my relationship with women. Um, but so I grew up around that and I remember watching Saturday Night Live with my dad. Um, oh, I'm yeah. not going to date myself right now by saying who was on SNL when I was watching it, but <laughs> yeah, what the hell? So, so Eddie Murphy was a huge, uh, there you go. On me. Yeah. And I was like, I want, I want to do that. And I really thought I was going to be a stand-up comedian, but I don't think I have the discipline to mm. sit and write jokes every day. Um, I, I, I have, I have so much respect for stand-up comics. The fact that they just even have that sort of guts to stand up, literally stand up in front of, you know, so many people. And just, you know, saying what's on their mind and nothing else, you know, like around them. So that's something, yeah, yeah, I I, I can never do it. So, yeah. (laughs) The problem with professional comedy is that a lot of them are very unhappy in their own lives. I I think, I think humor comes from pain. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's a whole other conversation. So (laughs) I grew up in this jazz artistic household and in elementary school, you know, we all do the the first grade play or the second grade play or whatever the heck. And mm-hmm. I remember we did a play in, I don't know, I'm going to guess like second or fourth grade about Ben Franklin. It's probably like a founding father-ish. I remember Ben Franklin. I think maybe mm-hmm. I played Ben Franklin or his assistant. Wow. I can't remember which. <laughs> and I had this apron that mm-hmm. I wore. And then I would come back on stage later as a different character and I remember <laughs> having this great idea that it would be really funny mm-hmm. to come back on as the second character, but still in the Ben Franklin apron. Oh, okay. Um, I don't think my teachers received it very well. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember if the audience laughed. And yeah. I definitely did not get a good role in the next play a few years <laughs> later. Um, you were riffing, and, so yeah. yeah, yeah. I was, I was already, already being a ham, and, <laughs> and, and then putting my ego ahead of the story. All bad things for an actor to do. So, you know, we all do those plays, and I, and yeah. it was, I ha- always had fun. But in high school, is the first time I actually had to audition for a show, and mm-hmm. I went to um, a place called the Fieldson School, the ethical, ethical culture Fieldson School, and it's a very prestigious, fancy you know, fancy New York private school. Mm-hmm. And I auditioned for a show directed by a senior, I was a junior named Elizabeth Bernkrant was her name. She was doing a show called Bent, which mm-hmm. is not what you normally do in high school. It's a play by Martin Sherman about the persecution of homosexuals during the Holocaust. So clearly the type of thing wow. that a normal high school would do. And during the audition, she said to me, you know, Bill, there's a, well, Billy, I was Billy back then, right? Um, there's a, there's this drag queen in the show. Would you be willing to play the drag queen? And I thought about it. I'm like, mm, I don't know if I really want to do that. Look, I was not cool in high school. I wasn't exactly bullied in high school, but it wasn't the best time for me. If you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I thought playing a drag queen might be a little, uh, so like much. giving them, giving them a, you know, some ample ammunition kind of thing. Yeah. Cause remember this is the nineties. We've, it's, it's, oh, it's, yeah. we've, we've moved a lot, a good deal toward acceptance, but back Thankfully, in the 90s, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we still threw around the word gay in lots of ways that were not cool. Yeah. Um, 
but I had the audition. It went fine, I guess. And then I thought about it. And for some reason, I just really wanted to be a part of the show. And I, I found Elizabeth. I like wandered the hall trying to find her. And I said, you know what? I reconsider. I would absolutely be happy to play that drag queen role if that's what you wanted, if you wanted me nice. in the show. Yeah. Sure enough, there you go. And I got, <laughs> I got more compliments on my appearance uh, in drag than I had to that point in my life in, as a man, normal. Wow. Um, also, there was a, our tech uh, teacher, supervisor, a guy named Larson Rose and his boyfriend, Ron, Rod, can't remember, so sorry. Mm -hmm. He was in Broadway on, uh, in a show called La Cadre Faux, which is about drag queens. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. so, so he would come to school after classes ended to get me in half drag makeup and then I would mm -hmm. finish off the rest before the show started. Nice. Um, and I would walk around from, you know, what time does school get out? Like three o'clock, four o'clock. I'd walk around from four o'clock till six thirty-seven in half drag makeup. And I used to wear glasses. I had LASIK mm -hmm. a few years ago. Oh, and okay. I'd have to take my glasses off. So I'd be walking around with blurry vision in half drag makeup. Yeah. And a lot of people didn't, realize it was me. And these are people I've been in school with for two, three, four, five, six, ten 10 years. Wow. And they'd come up to me and be like, oh, you know, we have a drag queen in school now. I'm like, really? Do we? Um, <laughs> so that was, that was, uh, but that was, I had a great time doing that show. It was obviously incredibly difficult. The subject matter was difficult, but it was deeply rewarding. I could never learn to walk in the heels. Um, mm -hmm. But that was, I think that was as close to a, Doing theater in high school, I think, was as close to the lightning bolt moment as I could have because it was the first time in high school I felt like I belonged. I know exactly like I was what you mean. Yep. In italics, normal. Yeah. Right. Um, you so found you found your it. spot. You know, like you found your you found your happy place. Mm -hmm. You know, to you know to be as general as possible. Like I mean, yeah. yeah. Like that's. I remember when I shook off my uh, my own stage fright when I was a junior in high school and then getting to aud finally audition for a show the very next year and then getting three roles with one of them being a lead. It was just like very much that sort of, oh, okay, so this is where, this is where I need to be. This is where I feel the most like myself. It was the only place that felt home. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then which, moved, uh, which uh, moved us both to a mutual home which was Marymount Manhattan College. Marymount Manhattan College, yeah. So, I, uh, you, so you came in in 97, <laughs> six, six, right? Uh, well, uh, boy, okay, we're just going to do all the dates, fine. Uh, so, I, so I took a year <laughs> off between high school and college because ah, I, okay. was, um, I was not a problematic teenager in that I was not, you know, I wasn't out doing crimes. I wasn't, you know, messing around with women because women wanted nothing to do with me back then. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't doing drugs, but I was a fantastic underachiever. Um, and oh, this, my battery is low, even though it's plugged in. Let's see how that goes. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, getting through high school was not easy. And I applied to one college because I was going to go to NYU for acting. And I never really, fuck, now that I think about it, I probably never auditioned for anything before my NYU audition, except for that play bent, probably. Wow. Um, maybe there were a couple of other things, but I doubt it. And like a lot of 
people who don't have their frontal cortex fully developed yet because they're under 25. Yeah. Um, I was probably a little entitled and arrogant without really any reason to be those things. Mm -hmm. um, and I probably didn't prepare enough for the NYU audition and it did not go well and I did not get in. And that was my only plan. Mm -hmm. So I took a year off um, and I interned at a casting office. A gentleman named Jay Binder, who has just announced his retirement. Jay Binder uh, used to cast literally every Disney Broadway show, Warner Brothers television. He, he was the biggest casting director in New York. Wow. Until uh, sort of like Rent was sort of the beginning of, of when he transitioned out. Mm. But for a long time. Um, because Rent gave rise to a cast director called Bernie Telsey. So as Telsey started to go up, he kind of replaced Jay yeah. a little bit. But, but Jay was the biggest casting director for a long time. So I worked with him, and I was the intern, and I didn't know a fucking thing. Uh, and then I didn't intern for him for about a year. And then I, I applied again to one school, which was Marymount, and I got in. So that was probably, what, 95? <laughs> yep. So it was like 96, 97, I guess-ish, is when I started. Yeah. 96, yeah, 96, 97. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and I was in the was... BFA theater department. Mm -hmm. How'd you like? Uh, how did you like the overall experience of being a Marymount? Because one of the things that I really appreciated about there was the fact that they, on uh, you, you probably you probably got the same lo uh, line of BS when uh, when during your orientation, but I just remember them saying New York is your campus, and I just remember thinking like, oh, this is just them saying that you know, like, yeah, we're just one building. Um, but then, but then when you actually experience it, it was just like, Oh, I see what you mean. You actually get to go out and be a part of New York city while you're out there. Like that's all of a sudden, it's just like, I get it now. Well, what's, um, what state did you go to high school in? I was, I actually went in uh, Virginia. I, I lived, uh, I lived in Richmond, Virginia for about six years from seventh grade through, um, through all of high school. And so it was a matter of like, because I had grown up in Poughkeepsie. So I was very much like a suburban kid, you know, mm -hmm. with very little experience in actual New York City. Uh, but once I got there, my freshman year, I felt like I, I felt right at home. I just like, this is where I need to be. Very much like, very much like theater as a whole. This is where I need to be. See, I think, I think the New York, because I do remember them having that tagline. New York is your campus. And yep. I think had I not grown up in New York, that might have been, I don't know, sexy or like a thing, you know? Yeah. But uh, I mean, look, I, Marymount, we are the product of our experiences, right? All the yeah. negatives and all the positives is who we Absolutely. are. Absolutely. Yeah. And had I not gone to Marymount, I would not have some of the best friends that I have. Uh, mm -hmm. Jason Goodman, who you know, and, and Absolutely. My buddy Simba wouldn't know you. Mm -hmm. I, my theater professors coached me on my Yale auditions, right? So maybe I wouldn't have gotten to Yale, which was another, you know, I'm not like just saying the name to yeah. say it. It wasn't just a milestone, yeah. it was also three of the best years of my life. And yeah. I've again made friends that so far I've had since and that I hope to have for the rest of my life and a real community. So Absolutely. there are definitely things I would have, different, would have done differently. And there are definitely ways that the school kind of disappointed me, uh, but I had a great time in the visual art department. I had a great time in the mm -hmm. theater department. Um, yeah, so it was, it was, 
I wonder what it would have been like to go to a school that had a sports team uh, <laughs> to be <laughs> to be to be on a campus. Um, but and my understanding is when we were at Marymount, the theater department was very much up and coming. But yeah. now it's yeah. pretty established. Oh yeah. So yeah. So Marymount was Marymount was great. You know, I uh, I had a much better GPA than I <laughs> than I did at uh, in Same high school. Same here. At least, at least for some of that time. <laughs> Yeah, uh, mine, you know, mine my, was a definite improvement as well. So yeah, I know what you I know what you're saying. My my ego definitely got in the way of me a few times though, and uh, yeah, but there you go. Yeah, and uh, with what do you remember what uh, what your audition piece was? Since you said you were in the BFA program, that's pretty that's that's pretty strong right there. Uh, I do remember. I know I probably had to do two, and I don't mm -hmm. remember the second one, but I'm pretty sure I did a monologue from uh, John Leguizamo's show Mambo Man. Oh, that's John such Leguizamo. a great show. Yeah. That was such a good show. Yeah. That was my, uh, my introduction to, to Leguizamo, too, like watching that on HBO. Yeah, Leguizamo is a singular performer, and I don't think that Hollywood has ever... I think he's too talented for Hollywood. He's been in a bunch mm -hmm. of films, and other than Carlito's Way and, like, Too Long Fu and, and maybe Moulin Rouge, he really hasn't been able to shine too much but he does these one-man shows whether it's latin history for morons or sexaholics or um Spico rama where right. he, he just he's a consummate performer and i i will say that even though the movie itself is uh very lackluster i did enjoy him in spawn so he was spawn he was good in spawn yeah, well, yeah. theoretically there's a new spawn movie coming we'll see, we'll see theoretically yeah yeah uh todd's been uh todd's been sitting on that for a while i get it though you, you know like after after the 97 movie you really want to make sure you get it just right uh yeah. <laughs> i i totally understand you know like that you know wanting to make sure that you really nail that character um especially considering how it was so overshadowed by the far superior animated show on HBO. Yeah. That animated show was fantastic. Oh, so, so good. great. So good. Especially uh, so season great. three. Oh, I guess man. it's probably, is it on HBO max? Probably might be at HBO max, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's uh yeah, we, we are made that jump. Yeah. We, uh, we made it a couple of months ago and, and I am very happy to, to have made it. Cause like I got, uh, we have the we have the Fire Stick, so we only have access to HBO now on that. But we also have a Chromecast plugged into the TV, so I'm able to access HBO Max from that. So, right. so well, I don't like there's still... Max show ever comes on, watch it. Let me know how it is. Absolutely, absolutely. So as as you as you go through uh, through Marymount, mm -hmm. um, it's not very long before I'm seeing you in a couple of commercials. So, uh -oh. um, geez, did those overlap with Marymount? They might have overlapped. They were, they were close by there. I still remember the Shark Week one, you know, that, um, <laughs> you remember the Shark I should Week have, one. I should have waited until you were until you had swallowed your drink before I mentioned no, that. But yeah, I remember that. Drink. Of course I do. <laughs> so, 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 uh, so for your listeners, um, so there's the Screen Actors Guild, right? Which is the union's SAG after, which, uh, protects, um, voiceover artists and on-camera performers. Mm -hmm. And if you're non-union, as I was during school, uh, it's a kind of Wild West time. So I did yeah. two commercials that got a lot of play, certainly in the New York area, yeah. as a non-union non performer around the time of school. Mm -hmm. My, the biggest one was this one for the New York Times weekend subscription called The Weekender. Yeah. And yes. it was a montage of yes. people Mm -hmm. And I think I was wearing like my corduroy jacket and uh, 
you know, I said, I had this big tagline. I was like, I'm not one of these call now people, but you should call. You should call now. Yes. I remember that. And and New York one literally played that thing every day, all morning for two years. Mm -hmm. Um, It was on other channels also. And, you know, everyone was like, oh man, you must be making bank. Cause then it's a little different now, but then if you were a SAG actor and you did a SAG commercial and played that many times, you would buy a car. The residuals aren't mm-hmm. quite as great now as they were uh, that many years ago, but still. So everyone's like, oh man, I saw your commercial again. You must be getting paid. I was like, no, because don't get me wrong, for a day of work, I think, <laughs> for, for one day of work and that commercial aired for two, maybe three years, I think I got three grand, which is great for a day of work. But if that was a union commercial, yeah. oh yeah, I would have made way more than three grand. Um, so I did that. Yeah. And then my other big non-union commercial was, uh, I, I don't know what it was advertising, but shark week was part of it. And I was in a blue, it was some, it was some sort of like a, like a pixel kind of thing. Like, yeah, um, was, we, we were, I was a pixel. I was a yeah. blue pixel. So I was in blue spandex yep. with a, with the blue bike helmet that was also covered in spandex. And when I was walking around on set, I was told like I looked very fast. Yeah, I was told I looked very fast. And I think it was, you know, for like, I don't think Fios existed, but I think it was for something like that, like a cable package or some high-speed internet yeah. or something. And yeah. we were, it was me and a bunch of people all in different primary colored spandex. And maybe there were some green ones too. Um, and we all had to yell Shark Week and then run around. And we did a bunch of takes of this commercial and we were all sort of doing different things and it looked kind of a mess. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I hadn't gone to Yale at that point, but I, I was a BFA actor. And I asked the director, I was like, I'm just curious when we yell, when we yell shark week, are we yelling because we're excited about the sharks or because we're scared of the sharks? Cause those are two very different things. And he, he was kind of taken aback and he looked at someone and he's like, you just a fucking pixel running around. Um, <laughs> so so I felt so I felt like an asshole and then we did a few more takes and it was garbage because it was I don't know probably 20 30 mm-hmm. people and then he said yeah. okay you guys are afraid of the sharks and I'm like hmm, okay hmm, interesting a director directing what a novel fucking concept uh so yeah so I was a pixel <laughs> running around yelling shark week uh yeah. which didn't play as much but those were my two big non-union uh commercials nice <laughs> And uh, so from there, um, you were, uh, were you just, uh, I know you said that, that it, uh, as we spoke before the, before the show started, it was, it was a, it was a fairly long period of time before you went from Marymount into grad into school. grad school. Yeah. So sometimes people like to say, oh, they're like, Bill, you took, you took some time off between undergrad and grad school. And I said, uh, no, because I don't think that's honest. Taking time off would imply or perhaps mean that grad school was the plan and it wasn't. I was going to get out of Marymount and be a series regular and be on Broadway and all that other bullshit. And (laughs) I did the actor hustle thing in New York for like nine years. And by actor hustle, I mean, I was a receptionist. I was a bouncer. I was a DJ. I was a waiter. I was a bar back. I was a bartender. I was a, a a restaurant, like a bar manager. I was, I was a receptionist. I was a reservationist. I, um, 
uh, it's probably something else I did in there that I forgot about. Um, yeah. And I had had friends who I'd gone to either college with or high school with, or somehow knew in another way who had gone to Yale or NYU or, or just some grad school. And they all right. became better people. Like even if they didn't continue in art or in theater, they just seemed more grown up, more well-rounded, more empathetic. And I thought, yeah. I want that. And yeah. I mentioned earlier that I used to be pretty arrogant. And I occasionally, after undergrad, I would get a really big audition. You know, I'd get my mm. maybe three times a year visit to ABC, right, to audition for a show, maybe three times a year. Right. And, and it would never go my way. And I was like, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with them. And I'm like, well, eventually I was like, well, maybe it's mm. not them. Maybe it's not them that needs to change. And don't get me wrong. Them does need to change. Like that's what's yeah. happening right now. Right. But there was yeah. still a lot of change that I could do. So um, I decided to audition for graduate school and I auditioned for five schools. I wasn't going to do what I did with Yale and NYU and only apply to one fucking school. I finally learned that lesson, right? So <laughs> I, I applied to yeah, five schools yeah. and I was fortunate enough to get into Yale and uh, spent three years Excellent. there. And, and like I said, it's the best, three of the best years of my life. Did, um, now not naming any, any names for the other four that you applied to, but did, uh, were you accepted in those as well? Uh, so let's see. Well, we can name names. I don't care. I applied to uh, University of San Diego, which is the Old Globe Theater Conservatory. They accept, I think, seven students a year, and they don't do callbacks. Uh, I got accepted by them. Wow. I did not get accepted Whoa. by what? Yeah, no, it's a big deal. It's, they don't do callbacks. Yeah. They just make their choice. It's crazy. I remember I was on an elevated train. It might have been the seven. And I guess I was going to Queens, and I got a call from the guy. And I was like, what? And he was the yeah. first person that called me. I was like, I'm still waiting to hear back. He's like, it's okay. We'd love to have you take your time. Um, so I got into that school. I did not get into Brown. Fuck Brown. No, um, I, mm -hmm. I got into NYU. <laughs> um, finally, I got into NYU. Ah, so, there you go. There you go. <laughs> like coming back around. <laughs> coming back around. Uh, so University of Southern California accepted mm -hmm. me. Old Globe. Wow. Um, NYU, and NYU, Yale, and then not Brown. So there you go. Right. Hey, four and one. That's fantastic. Yeah. 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 And what's it, I mean, if we really want to go origin story here, I, I should mention that. So I mentioned my dad was a jazz musician. My dad died when I was eight. Right. Um, so I was basically raised by oh, my mother wow. and my grandmother. And my mother, and my mother died. And my grandmother died in 2000, which was the year I graduated college. And my mom... Right got a terminal cancer diagnosis in 2006 and she was supposed oh, to have, she was supposed to have six months and she lasted for three years, about a year and a half. Wow. Cumulatively was really great. We did a mm -hmm. lot of, we got to do a lot of things that we never got to do. And she got to do things oh, she had never done and like go to California for the first time. And we got nice. to have a lot of those conversations. Mm -hmm. And that, then I realized that, not making a decision is the same thing as making a decision. And part of mm. the reason that I had stayed in New York as long as I had, because I 
went, grew up in New York, went to high school in New York, went to college in New York. Um, I traveled, but I'd never left New York for more than a couple months. Right. Was I was staying for my mom. She was mm-hmm. my best friend, you know, and she, she was often in ill, Ill health. Mm-hmm. So I decided to go to grad school and she, and that was my application was, I guess, 2008. Right. And she had been diagnosed in 2006. Mm-hmm. So I knew my mom was yeah. on my way on her way out. And mm-hmm. I, I had been accepted to the school in San Diego old globe um, mm-hmm. I think during one of my last conversations with her, I was, um, I was on the West coast visiting schools for callbacks and interviews and such. Um, and I had my initial, I guess I'd had my Yale callback, but I hadn't been, um, I was on the wait list for Yale. They, they had yeah. at that point, I don't know if they still do. They wait listed one female student and one male student and they accept about 15 people a year. So I was on the wait list. Mm-hmm which is good news. You know, it's not the news you want, but it's not yeah. bad news. It's not no. Yeah. It's not no. And, and uh, I spoke to my mom and she's like, wait list, the hell with them. You go to San Diego. And she's very much wow. a Jewish, Jewish Bronx mother. Um, <laughs> and, and then um, the day before I was supposed to fly back to New York, she died. And mm. I don't think that was a coincidence. I don't think she wanted me there for mm. that. Yeah. And uh, I get back to New York and I'm literally on the phone with the rabbi planning the service. Mm-hmm. And that's when Yale called me to told, tell me that I was accepted. Whew. Wow. So I'm pretty sure she got up there and she was like, you listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> My son is going to Yale. Great. Yes. Um, oh, that's fantastic. So, yeah. So uh, that was, so I, I just think, you know, in full disclosure of, of the origin story, I, I thought that was important to, yeah. to mention. Wow. Wow, man. That's fantastic. So, uh, so what was the experience like, you know, like in, in Yale? Like, I mean, that's such a, that's such a, you know, such a high level, you know, kind of school there and felt like you were definitely like in this whole other, other world, really. Like, what was it, what was that whole experience like? Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about my time there because there's in I can't really say in the wake because it's not over, right? But as a result right. of the George Floyd protests and the mm-hmm. acceptance of the Black Lives Matter movement, there mm-hmm. is a reckoning going on with academic institutions in general and also theater institutions specifically, including theater training programs. Yeah. And a lot of the training up until a couple of years ago that one would receive at almost any institution in this country regarding mm-hmm. theater and film training is was very white centric and some might mm-hmm. say anti-black and certainly I could say racist. Mm-hmm. Um, my time at Yale was, like I said, three of the best years of my life, would not change much about it. And there were certainly a few instances that were uncomfortable for me racially, but Mm. I certainly know that some of my contemporaries had a much harder time than I did. Yeah. Um, And I'm not going to speculate as to why that is uh, or was. Um, All that said, yeah, Yale is, 
is one of those, right? It's Madonna. It's a one named entity. Um, mm-hmm. Yale, Harvard. Uh, and as far as acting goes, right? It's like Yale, Juilliard and NYU. So for me to come from right. the ghetto of the South Bronx and be accepted to Yale, especially given my academic performance up to that point was pretty amazing. Um, mm-hmm. That's because I'm not supposed to be there, right? Especially then, because things are so different, even two years ago, right? yeah. but especially now. Especially then, I'm not supposed to go to Yale. Um, right. And but you did. And that's, but I did. Yeah. And that was not lost did. on me. Yeah, but that was yeah. not lost on me. And also, it's one of those things where I'm sure you, you've heard of the imposter complex. Oh, yeah. 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 I, li- I deal with that all the time. <laughs> like that's, so in, that's... in case there's any of your listeners who are fortunate enough to not have dealt with the imposter complex, you know, mm-hmm. basically when, when an individual achieves a certain goal or a certain level that they've been trying to get to, they usually um, are inundated with feelings of, oh, wait, this is a mistake and I'm going to be found out. Right. So, so we I don't actually got to... belong sp- here. Yeah. Yeah, and we, we all got a speech on that day one in orientation. It's like, you're all going to feel this way, but you belong here. But I would also find that there was sort of a two-way imposter complex and that I would meet people. I remember I was, it was one of my last auditions, I think, before I went off to school. Mm-hmm. Or it was a, no, it wasn't an audition. I think it was a reading. Like, we had worked on something together. I was in the elevator with this woman. I don't remember who she was because it's like however many years ago now. But I just worked with her and had a really good experience just working with her. Now in the elevator, and she's talking about her plans. And then she asked me what I'm up to. I'm like, oh, I'm getting ready to go to school. And already I'm having this thing of when you go to a place like Yale, there's a sort of, oh, you're not supposed to say it. You're supposed to say, oh, I'm going to school in Connecticut or New Haven or whatever. And she found out I was going to Yale and she immediately started treating me differently. Mm. Um, So it is one of those things that like there's a a positive stigma and there's a negative stigma about it. Um, And I have to stop apologizing for it. Like I don't need to name drunk that I went there, but I also just need to be like, yeah, I fucking went there and that's where I went. I'm not going to apologize for it, but it doesn't make me better than you. It doesn't make me a better actor than you. It just means right. I, I applied it's like at, and I got in. At that point of time, at that point of time, you applied, you got accepted. Like that's, yeah. you know, there's, there's no, there's no other, no other way around that. It was just like at yeah. that moment, you know, they looked at you and said, come on, you're worthy. Yeah. That's something and that you exactly. take with you for the rest of your life, which is, yeah. I mean, that's an amazing accomplishment. There are so many, yeah. you know, so, you know, and yeah, definitely own it. You know, that's something, that's yeah. something that, uh, you know, and I'm glad that you have, that you, Thanks. that you, you know, come around, you know, to that. And uh, so, so you go through Yale mm-hmm. and then all Ooh, of a sudden yes. there you are on HBO in 2014, correct? With the normal heart. Uh, so what happened is, uh, <laughs> I know that there's, you know, there's definitely like steps along the way, you know, like it's well, so steps like, along the way. I just, I, <laughs> I, I, I was just, I, I thought you were going a different place with that. Um, is that, uh, so in my class, uh, was a girl named Lupita Nyong'o, mm-hmm. uh, who oh. was my classmate. Oh, wow. Did you not know that? You didn't know that. I did not know that. No. Yeah. <laughs> she, yeah she's, she's my classmate. And, and to this day, I'm a very good friend of mine. And, uh, she so she won an Oscar. Everyone's like, really? Yeah, yeah. she won, she won an Oscar the year after <laughs> we graduated, mm-hmm. George. The year wow. after we graduated, she won an Oscar, and oh man, you know, and she changed the face of graduate programs in doing that, which I will talk about momentarily. Usually, yeah. 
before Lupita, there, there's, there's, there's AL and BL, right? So like before Lupita, if you went to a grad school, mm -hmm. you could sort of start to expect to work within five to seven years. Like the industry had to get to know you. There was always one or two people that like somehow, you know, had a big break before then. But generally you had to relearn the industry because it was different than when you left it. You hadn't auditioned mm -hmm. for anything in a long time and the industry had to get to know you. And they only want to give you a big role if they believe that you can handle it. So they need to see a body of work, right? And school right. doesn't count. So, mm -hmm. so she auditioned for 12 Years of Slave while we were preparing to graduate, doing showcase and such. She shot it. We all knew it was going to be a thing. Obviously, we didn't know it was going to turn her into one of the most famous people in the world. And then a year yeah. later, she wins an Oscar. And the majority of her classmates are not working. Um, wow. so, so she set the bar. <laughs> she set the bar unrealistically <laughs> fairly high. high. <laughs> fairly high. So, so I was falling into that other group. I wasn't working. And a year had gone by since graduation, almost exactly a year since graduation. And I hadn't booked a single job. Not a commercial, not mm -hmm. a not a co-star on Law and Order, nothing. And mm -hmm. um, I was called into audition for the Normal Heart in a role that was written as a French guy named Pierre, but I guess they wanted a brown French guy. So I so mm -hmm. I went in, and you know the audition was like one page, and it's one of those things where I remember yeah. I left. I remember vividly leaving because. I haven't been in the HBO offices, but like twice to audition. It's one of those places you go. It's like, oh, fuck, HBO. And you're like, yay. You know, oh, my God, yeah. I want to work at HBO. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So I left and I was like, oh, fuck, I should have done XYZ and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't. And then all of a sudden I get a call from my at that time I had a manager and an agent. I now have a different manager and a different agent who I am huge fans of, but back, but we, this was with the old representation team and right. I got a call and they wanted me to, uh, not to screen test, but they wanted me to have a director's session with Frank DeJulio, who had already been cast, who was playing my lover in the film. Wow. And Ryan Murphy, who was the mm -hmm. director. Um, Whoa. and I, and I didn't, <laughs> Yeah, and I didn't understand because it wasn't a screen test and it wasn't a chemistry read. It was just a director session. I didn't understand what, what that meant. Yeah, and if you've if you've seen the film, there's this. My big moment is I, I'm running down the streets of the West Village carrying Frank, carrying my lover as he is dying of AIDS, mm. and I show up at Mark Ruffalo, uh, Ned Ned's apartment, and I'm like, Ned, please help. Blah blah blah. He's dying. Yeah, and I had to when it came to shoot it, I physically. Fortunately, I happened to be doing CrossFit at that time, like five times a day, five times a week. So I was incredibly fit, um, <laughs> fitter than I've ever been in my yeah. life. But uh, <laughs> I had to, I had to run down a street in the West Village carrying a 160 some odd pound human being uh, many times. So, wow. For this thing that wasn't a chemistry read, they told me they wanted me to be prepared to carry Frank, so I should wear something mm -hmm. comfortable that I could run it. So I'm having this debate. I've never had a director's session. I haven't met Frank. I'm not going to show up in sweats, even though they want me to be comfortable because like they need to see that I look good on camera. Right. So I wore, <laughs> I wore something probably slightly more fashionable than sporty, but definitely something I could move in. It's probably a very banana Republic outfit. 
not Banana Republic mm-hmm. in terms of a bad government, but in terms of the the store and the store. Yeah, yeah, the, the clothing store. And right. so I show I show up and I'm wearing this outfit, and they're like, "Dude, you're gonna be able to move in that." And I said, "Absolutely, man, I got you." And I really wanted to read the scene, and they seemed to not be super interested in that. We did eventually read the scene. I can't remember if it was after the physical activity or before, but basically they had me, this guy, Mark Unick, who's become a friend of mine, mm-hmm. and this other dude, and Frank. And mm-hmm. the three of us were all, you know, north of six, one, six, two, six, three. And Frank is, is much shorter. And they brought us down to Battery Park and they brought all this equipment. They brought stuff to record. They brought like water bottles and snacks. And they wanted us each to pick Frank up mm. and run with him as fast as we could down this open field in Battery mm-hmm. Park, which is the most unusual audition I've ever had. Wow. And I was being very, remember I'd been out of grad school just under a year. I was being very stage mm-hmm. combat class about it. And I, I, I asked them, well, how do you want us to carry him? Do you want us to carry him fireman style? Do you want us to carry him cradle style? Like cradle style probably looks better, but fireman style is probably going to be safer and easier. And they said, well, cradle style. Oh, of course they did. And then I scouted out the <laughs> field, like looking for rocks and twigs and shit. Cause I know I had one job. Don't drop the ball. And I yeah. did not want to be tripping right. over some fucking stick or some shit. Mm-hmm. So I scouted out and I, I check in with Frank being a good partner, being like, hey, man, you good? You ready? And I ran as fast as I possibly could holding that dude. Oh, man. And didn't trip, didn't do anything. And then Mark, uh, (laughs) Mark picked him up, took like a step, and immediately tripped and dropped him. Oh, (laughs) jeez. No. Um, And I don't don't remember the third guy did fine, but but I got the part and uh, you know, I, I go home after that weird experience and it's probably towards the end of the week. And I think in the early part of the next week, I wake mm-hmm. up and I'm just having a good day and I get yeah. a call, a conference call from my agent and my manager. And they're like, someone's going to get an offer. And, I was like, mm-hmm. and that happened one week before the one year anniversary of me graduating. And, wow. and then I, and then I booked normal heart. And I shot it and it was um, another one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. Mm-hmm. I definitely a few things I would have done differently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going through some things at that point in time. I was in a really messy relationship that was ending and was maybe like a little needy and clingy. It's kind of why Mark Ruffalo doesn't talk to me anymore, but other people still do. Really? Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it's not like, <laughs> like he's not mad at me. It's just, I was a little weird. I was just being a little weird. You know, I'm sure if I saw him on the street, he'd be like, hey, what's up? But he's not going to return a phone call. And that's fine because I was kind of a mess. But other people that I met, my friend Daniel Keith, um, the actor B.B. Wong and, and Joe Mantello, like we've all stayed in touch and they saw through like whatever weird neediness I was putting out. Because it was also my first big movie job. You yeah. Know? And um, I was working with a lot of people who I had admired before. Um, mm-hmm. Ruffalo and BD and Joe Mantello and Jonathan Groff and um, and we were all like a big group and it was great to be part of a group and I hadn't really been a part of a group right because after school you're just spat out and you're on your own so right. I was I was kind of a mess I was kind of a mess but um, and Sarah uh, who was a she was an assistant and now she's one of Ryan's producers so I've nice. seen her work her yeah. way out. 
Um, so I'm very fortunate that some people saw through, saw through my messiness and are still my friends right. as a result of that film. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I shot the movie and then, and this is, this is kind of the cruel, I don't know, cruel, but this is what the irony or the whatever is I shoot the movie. I had this great time waiting for it to come out. And then almost a year goes by and I haven't booked another job. And I'm mm. and it hasn't come out yet, right? And I'm auditioning yeah. less and I'm auditioning less and less. Mm. And I call up my agent and I I'm just trying to figure out like what's up? What what can we do? Right? What can we do mm-hmm. to to get me into rooms to because like this movie should be a huge step for my career. And at that point I was still sort of not when I was on set, not when I was working on normal art, but in general, I was still very concerned with the result. Like, what is this right. going to accomplish for me? And now I'm much more about the process of the thing because I've grown up, right? Mm-hmm. The, jur- the journey is where you are in the moment, not where you're trying to go, right? Yeah. Um, and my agent, I remember very vividly, my agent said to me, we're having trouble getting you into rooms. And mm. I thought, and I didn't say this at the time, because I was a different person, I would sure as shit say it now. But that was her one job was to get me into rooms. And if you if you're having trouble getting me into rooms and you don't know why that is, and you're not interested in finding out why that is, then we have a fucking problem, right? Yeah. So so my agent dropped me and my manager dropped me weeks, a week, a month before the movie was supposed to come. So when the movie, oh, when wow. Normal Heart, yeah, when, when Normal Heart came out, I didn't have anyone representing me to like help me push my career forward. Cause that's supposed to happen. You have to have a movie come out and you're supposed to get like a push where, you know, maybe they get you a, yeah. an article in a magazine or whatever the fuck. And so I didn't have that. Right. And I, and I started. But that's when the I, phone, yeah, that's when the phone is, start, is supposed to start ringing. Exactly. You know, and there's no yeah. one there to answer the phone. And I started waiting tables again two years after graduating, a year before, you know, a year after I made this movie, right before the movie comes out at this fancy place called the Waverly, yeah. Waverly Inn in the West Village. And it was a mm. very like okay. name, name droppy place. Harvey Weinstein, toy toy on that guy, right? Uh, Harvey Weinstein yeah. lived across the street and all these celebrities would come in all the time. And all I wanted was to not see anyone from the movie. And of course, my first week there, Ruffalo comes in. And he was very sweet. And he was very sweet. Yeah. And he was like, hey, man, we've all been there. Don't worry about it. And then a couple of days later, the costume designer comes in and they were all like surprised to see me working there. Well, I was surprised to see me working there too. Um, yeah. Not shitting on restaurant work. Not at all doing that. I'm just like, no, of course not. not. No. You know, that was just not the big plan that I had in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, Never then is. The, movie yeah. comes, the movie comes out. I go to the premiere and... I'm literally hanging out with Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts, knowing very well that the next day I'm going to be catering. Mm. (laughs) And and that's, that's the life of most actors. You know, most actors are the majority of actors, like paid up members of unions, be it actors equity or SAG AFTRA. Most are unemployed most of the time. And most of the, and a good portion of those people that are unemployed aren't even getting decent residuals from anything. You know, sometimes you have unemployed right. people who, who they at least have residuals coming in because they did like a week of NCIS in uh, LA or NCIS New Orleans or NCIS, whatever. <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> uh, so, 
yeah, I was just one of the majority of actors who were unemployed and mm -hmm. you know, scraping by. And yeah, I don't know how, how that changed. I think some of that was luck. And I think some of that was me changing the way I lived my life and my attitude on things. Mm -hmm. um, there's a big SAG contract negotiation going on right now, or not neg negotiations over, it's a vote. And there's a number of people in the union who are telling other union members to vote no. But most of those people telling people to vote no are that 1%, right? Who have mm. the residuals coming in, who work all the time, who are names. Because this contract mostly benefits the working class of that uh, mm. community. So yeah, so so that's the that's the normal heart story. So how did so um so I know you had like some other roles, um in you know as uh, as time went on there, but then all of a sudden I remember, um, hearing about the audiobook coming out for this book ah. called the Underground Airlines, and all of a sudden I look and I see that your name's attached to it. I was like, oh okay. All right, I need to I need to definitely take a look in this direction because th it was around this point that I was starting to get into audiobook narrating myself. Cuz I had I had done I had, you know, taken the lessons and everything over at my uh local studio and I had recorded my demo over there and I went ahead and read a sample chapter of my book Excelsior for my oh publisher my at the time and just said like, "Can I um can I do do the audiobook?" Here's a sample of, of the chapter. And she liked it and, let, and gave me her blessing for me to go ahead and just narrate the whole thing. Um, so I was, you know, like kind of getting into that realm myself. And all of a sudden, there you are in a very high profile book. So how did, uh, how did all of a sudden oh you find your way into audiobook narrating? Because you've gotten, you've, you've gotten quite a bit of experience in that now. I've got a little bit. I mean, I've got... Uh less than less than a bunch of people i know but also more than a bunch of people i know too right uh there's like my friends uh yeah. suzanne oh, yeah. and scott who i mean that's all they do they just sit in their house all day and record video games and audiobooks and my friend sophie amos um but i've done i guess since 2016 i'm probably knocking on 20-ish books right now that's fantastic um which is fantastic but like my friend kevin kennerly uh, who I know from Oregon Shakespeare, he had Memophug gets paid to do some books, boy. Um, had, didn't, didn't Kevin Kennerly do The Running Man? I, I wait. The name like, sounds very familiar. Like I, the audio book. Dude, book. I can't tell. Kevin has done so many books. I could not tell you. <laughs> he's done so many books. And he's, you know, he is, he is a majestic performer and he, his voice is, is a gift from the Lord. So I hope yeah. he's done The Running Man because it would sound yeah, fucking awesome I, if he I remember. Did it um yeah i i have that so you know like i believe he is he, i i think he is i'm gonna have to look it up but well, he know, works like, a lot I with am, a company uh, called blackstone audio out of oregon so if it's a blackstone mm -hmm. thing he's probably but uh look you know one of the recurring themes of this conversation is me being humble be like being arrogant and then being humbled uh i think mm -hmm. another thing is i i tend to say yes and not either have enough information or in the past, not always do the homework. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a woman, she, she left the agency recently because she had a baby, Samantha Clifford Samaro. She was my 
voiceover agent at CESD. And she was the first agent I had. When I signed with them for voiceover, it was probably 2015-ish. And she was the first agent I had who actually believed in me, really, and understood Mm. what my strengths were. And voice stuff, I do, I'm a dialect coach, I do accents, I do all, you know, impressions, I, I do a lot of stuff. And, and she was really passionate about me. And she started pitching me for audiobooks. And mm-hmm. I, I think Underground Airlines was the first, and my understanding is that the audiobook business works very different in LA than it does in New York. In LA, you usually don't mm-hmm. get it through an agent, but in New York, you sometimes do. So yeah, I, I think Underground Airlines was the maybe third audiobook I ever auditioned for, maybe the first, and mm-hmm. I got it. And it's a great awesome. book. And it was very written about and also very controversial because uh, Ben Winters, who's a lovely dude, he's a white dude, he wrote a book mm-hmm. from the perspective, yeah. a first person narration style book from the perspective of a, of a escaped slave, right? And it's this, it's this alternate history America where um, the South won, or, or not the South one, sorry, where slavery still existed in a few states. So, so my yeah. character, the narrator, was a slave that escaped, that got recaptured, and then had to go hunt down other escaped slaves. So Twitter did what Twitter does, and they're like, this white guy wrote this book about slavery, how dare he? But right. you know, he did his research, and he wrote a brilliant, empathetic character that the audience could sympathize with. So I'm not interested in a world... Like, I want Black people to tell Black stories, but I am also not interested in a world where right. only Black people tell Black stories. Because um, that's not interesting, mm-hmm. you know, because where, where does that end? I think if yeah. you do your research and you have empathy, then you've created a character and not a caricature. So that's mm-hmm. what Ben did. And I was very fortunate to work on that book. And it was my first audiobook, And I got nominated for an audio award. And I didn't know yeah. what those were. Um, because it was my first audiobook and I didn't have I didn't have any mentorship like Suzanne Friedman who I mentioned who's this wonderful narrator we're friends now and she she always busts my chops for not knowing what the fucking audio was when I was nominated for my first book which which never happens you know for those people that don't know the audience they're like they're like the Oscars of of narration of of audiobooks um Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go to the award ceremony, but you have to pay for it. And it was like a very expensive ticket and I didn't go. I wish I had now, um, yeah. but I still didn't realize how big a deal. It was. So anyway, I got, I got nominated for that. And then that, the success of that book led me to a company called Autumn, A-U-D-M, mm-hmm. which is a streaming service for narrated long form journalism. Mm. So the gentleman that founded the company, which recently sold to the New York Times, but they still kind of oversee it, uh, Christian Brink and Ryan Wegner, mm-hmm. they cold called me. They got my, my email or my number. And because they liked Audi, uh, because they liked Underground Airlines, they said, look, we've got this company. We're having folks narrate articles from the New York Times and, or I guess not New York Times at that point, but like the New Yorker and New York Magazine and the Atlantic and foreign policy, you know, all the liberal kind of garbage I read. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And, and they said, we'd love to have you come on board. So I've been able to work for them fairly consistently for the last few years. Uh, and that's been really great. Not, not just because it's a check, but 
yeah. I feel like I'm putting content into the world that I support. You know, I've gotten mm -hmm. to read some pieces from Tana Hasi Coates, um, and I've gotten to read some pieces about why Trump is the worst human being in the world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I feel like it's my little contribution to to the news cycle in a positive way. And so, and then and then since then I've done some other books, and I've got two books that I'm recording in the next two months. One is a children's maybe an all ages book about Michael Jordan called who is Michael Jordan. And then the other one is a, Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was actually just, just. So is that, that that's the, uh, the, who, the, who is, who was kind of, kind of books, right? Like the series of books. What? Is it part of a series? I don't, I don't know. Maybe. I know I that know. there's, there is like a, um, there's a, there's a long running series of, you know, like who is this person who was this person. And you know, like they're all like little, uh, little oh. books that may be like, I don't know, about 30 some pages long, but they're, they're very, very popular. During oh. the time, the brief time that I was working at Barnes and Noble, there were a lot of, a lot of those books move, that, that moved. And so, yeah, I can, yeah, that's, that's a big deal. It's a big well, deal to be, uh, to be involved in that. Look, I'm just a huge Michael Jordan fan. So I'm just happy yeah. to be <laughs> reading, read something about Michael Jordan. Uh, and then right. next month, I should be recording something called uh, The Modern Detective, which is a book uh, about real life uh, private detectives. So, yeah. Nice. So I'm looking forward so this, to this is where this is where the, the envious part of me pops up. Um, when you go and do one of these, one of these books, is it, are you, mm -hmm. you're basically just there to narrate. And then when you're done, you're done, right? Like you have like oh, the other producers, you, you, the producers that are actually like doing the editing. Because you do your own editing, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I, I won't, when I work for Autumn, and I've recorded mm -hmm. articles for them that are an hour, an hour and a half long. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's like if it's a piece from the New Yorker, it could be an hour and a half long. But if it's from, you know, uh, the Atlantic, it might only be half an hour or something. So right. when I record an article for Autumn, or if I record a voiceover audition, right? Um, then yes, I am doing my own editing. When I record okay. a book, when I record a book, uh, even if I'm doing it from home, I've done a few, especially mm -hmm. in quarantine. Um, I just did a couple months ago. Uh, there's this author, Laird Barron. He's got this Isaiah Coleridge trilogy right now. He's this a Maori uh, private detective, former hitman who's from Alaska. It's pretty cool storyline nice. so i did that from a closet <laughs> during quarantine but i had the yep. director <laughs> I, had the, I had the director on the headset with me helping keep me honest in terms of oh that voice wasn't the right character voice and you missed that word so and so and then you know we just send all the raw footage or not footage but the raw audio off to whoever the editor is i'm sorry i don't remember the editor's <sighs> name right now and yeah because i i will not yeah. i will not do and again, this is not, this is not a, a disrespect thing. Like I, I just don't have the patience to do a whole book mm -hmm. and edit it myself. I don't think yeah. the cost benefit analysis on that would work out for me. Gotcha. I know what, I know what you mean. I really do. <laughs> um, I haven't gone there several times myself and you know, like I'll be doing that, you know, like as soon as I finish this, uh, this, this uh, book that I'm doing for my, uh, for my client. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a hill, you know, and um, at some point I will find that happy medium when it comes to my editing, but uh, yeah, so that's, so, the, so there's that, but there's also uh, one of the, or a couple of uh, credits that I noticed on, on your uh -oh. IMDb page 
that definitely um, that definitely had had my eyebrows raised. Oh, boy. Um, lending your voices to Red Dead Redemption Two and, and Grand, Grand Theft Auto. Theft Auto. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, what was it like doing doing that? Was it just like just recording a few voices and then sending it in, or was there so there was there like a whole a, other process? Not not to be the union mouthpiece here, uh, right. but there was since I worked on those games there was a contract that was negotiated by SAG after as far as video games are concerned, because quite frankly, the terms of the contract we had been working under were negotiated before anyone really had the foresight to understand the money making machine that video games would be. Because, you know, I think call it when, when one of the call of duties came out a few years ago, it made like $560 million in one day or something insane like that. They make, they make, they make, you know, Marvel money. Um, Yeah. And we don't get any of that. And the developers and the programmers don't get any of that. It's just goes to the the company and the shareholders. And Mm -hmm. also a lot of the labor practices weren't very fair. So they, they Mm -hmm. would have, I don't remember, I don't think it was the case with Grand Theft Auto, but certainly when I went in to go go do Red Dead Redemption 2, they're both rockstar, rockstar games. They wouldn't even tell me what game I was working on. Really? Um, yeah, they used to go crazy with confidentiality, and now, be, as a result of this new contract, they're not allowed to do that. Because what if what if you're a deeply religious person, right? You might not want to lend your voice to Red right. Dead Redemption because there's you know all kinds of violence mm-hmm. and whatever, and Grand Theft Auto certainly. So now they they and even though I had signed a confidentiality, they still wouldn't tell me. But I got in there and they had me doing five or six different voices of different black men all with southern accents and i was talking about like horses and stagecoaches and i said oh guys is this grand theft auto and they're like shh. i'm sorry is this red dead redemption and they're like shh, 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 shh. like okay well it's clearly red dead redemption. <laughs> um so yeah. in both those games in both those games i was local population so i don't know how they're using the voices and if you follow me on Instagram, I fell down a real deep Red Dead Redemption hole during quarantine because I had not bought the game specifically because <laughs> I knew I would lose my life to it because I just think it's one of my favorite video games. So right. I, I knew I knew that was going to happen. And yeah, my wife is, she's like, you playing Red Dead Redemption again? You, you having fun being a cowboy? Uh, my wife does not sound like that. And <laughs> That was, that and was, was uncanny, trying, by the way. Yeah, it's uncanny. <laughs> I was trying. I was trying to find myself in the game, like literally the characters I voiced, and I think I found one. My buddy Jared Berenstein, he, he's a comic. He's very funny. He uh, he thinks he's found me several times, but he never is able to uh, record me for some reason. He's always too late on that. But it was a lot of fun. It was it was difficult right. work because in that old contract, they were just trying to get as much work of work out of you as they could in a short period of time. Right. Um, and uh, so, you know, they, one game I did, they basically just wanted me to yell for like one or two straight hours, which if they had told me in advance, I could have prepared for that, but I had a show that night. Yeah. So that was not great. Uh, and now that I'm thinking about it, I'm remembering that I had met a dude at Rockstar as a result of a crazy play i did and that he might be part of the reason that um i ended up with one of those jobs i don't know but yeah so i'm really happy to be in the game i'm not a featured character it's very 
possible that you might never encounter me. If you do encounter me, please let me know where you have done so. Uh, I don't remember any of the dialogue. I think I was talking about a cow at one point. Um, but yeah, but it's it's fun and I love those games and I think Rockstar makes great games. Fabulous, fabulous. It's amazing how how things really kind of lead from one thing to another, like all these different types of opportunities. So like, with with everything that you're doing um, mm-hmm. and, you know, like basically like working your way up to um, this other movie that's uh, that you have that you have coming out, uh, The Surrogate. Oh, um, yeah. Which uh, which we'll which we'll also talk about, but you know, just really quick, um, is there like a sort of dream project that you still like? Just kind of like, is that the is there like one that you're still kind of reaching for? So there's so many. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, it's like my brain is overloaded. Uh, look, so oh no worries, I I I need to be a lead in a Marvel film. I'll, it just has to happen. It's it it drives yeah. me crazy yeah. that that these films are out there now and I've devoted so much of my life and money to these books and the studio could not care who I am. It's like, I would make your films better, either right. advising, assistant directing, <laughs> helping with concept art, like being mm-hmm. in them. So yeah. whether it's whether it's Wonder Woman 3 for DC or the next phase of the Avengers things, I gotta be in that. Um, and that and that was and I do have to say like that was one that was one of the things that really kind of brought us brought us together um, yes. was, our, was our love for these. I still remember opening night at uh, the Ziegfeld seeing you outside uh, for X2 and like us just like hugging each other because yeah. we were so thrilled with it. <laughs> just, awesome. well, it was one, of, one, of, one of the good X-Men movies was X2. That was. Definitely um, was, yeah. And it's what? It's the 25th anniversary of the X-Men movies now or something? Uh, 20th, something insane like 20th. that? 20th. 20, Jesus. Oh, yeah, my God. first one came out 20 years ago. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Oh, it's my God. Pretty wild. Oh, yeah. We're so old. Uh, we so are. That, <laughs> I, need, I, I, love, I love a good cartoon. Uh, I need to be mm-hmm. the voice of, of Batman or someone uh, in that kind of area. I was actually just, I finished the Harley Quinn cartoon on a DC streaming service, which, have you checked it out? Not yet. Not yet. It's, I, I, it's great. It is great. I've heard it's, I heard it's really good. Yeah, I definitely it's would It's probably one of the best bits of uh, narrative, you know, really? uh, that DC has put out. Uh, it's a lot better than a lot of the movies. It's really good. Is Paul um, Dini involved in it? Yeah, he is. He there is. you go. It's, it's, sort <laughs> of, it's sort of like a, an adult successor to the animated series, Batman the animated Ooh. series in a way. The Ooh, the animation nice. style is the animation style is clearly similar the descendant of yeah. that. Oh nice. And a lot of the character designs are sort of inheritors of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and it sort of exists in a bastardized world of that. But it's re- it's really great. And Lake Bell as Poison Ivy is just uh, the yeah. best. That's the casting is amazing. Great um, choice. Great choice. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. So those things, and I am working on a, on a pilot for an animated show called B Team, which I really hope to get made. No kidding. Yeah. No kidding. So this is, this is great stuff. This is, so, this, is, this is so good. So now, you know, so. Oh, and I need um, to play Richard III. So there you go. Those oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's, hey, you know, like, a, man, a man's reach should exceed its grasp, or what's a heaven there, for, right? You know, there you go, and it certainly know? does for the moment. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, so so tell us a little bit about the uh, you got you know out of a very well received movie that's that's uh, coming out called The Surrogate. 
Um, yeah, so the surrogate is available for streaming now, I believe, on, on all your fine places where you buy uh, digital content. Uh, directed mm -hmm. by a man, uh, directed by a man named Jeremy Hirsch. And mm -hmm. it's a really, look, my part in it is super small. I'm just happy to be a part of the project. It's a really meaningful story about a woman who is a surrogate for a gay couple. And mm -hmm. it turns out that it's not a straightforward pregnancy and yeah. the moral dilemmas that surround that. Mm -hmm. So it's just, I like telling stories that um, are meaningful. And I've been very yeah. fortunate in that, whether it's normal heart or whether it's surrogate, for the most part in my career, I've been able to tell stories that have meaning to people. You know, I did an episode of NCIS uh, New Orleans mm -hmm. at the end of last year. And it was my part in the stories that I was a, basically like a SWAT agent, uh, like yeah. the NCIS equivalent of SWAT. Mm -hmm. And I was hiding, my character was hiding the fact that he was gay and had a son. And in the scene, it comes out that he he's, has a son and that he's also gay. And, and that I was reached out to um, over Twitter by some people who that actually really affected them that they got to see that on television. So I'm, I'm lucky that even when I've done stuff that's kind of more mainstreamy, it's, it's been meaningful to some people. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's one, that's one thing that I've, uh, that I've really, that's, that I've noticed, you know, like about the, the sort of work that you put out, it's all very, very hard hitting. You know, it doesn't shy away from, uh, from the, from, you know, like from any sort of controversial topics. And I've noticed that that's something that, that really appeals to you. So that's, uh, that's great that you've been able to take what you're passionate about and make it as part of your ongoing career. I think that's, I think that's terrific. Uh, what, what uh, sort of advice would you have for those that are trying to basically just kind of, you know, come up in, the same sort of manner that you did, you know, like in terms of, you know, having, being a fan of the, of this sort of material and wanting to, wanting to apply themselves to that wanting to contribute to that. What would you have to say about that? Say, so please learn from my mistakes. Um, seriously. Uh, I would say so many things. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, it's been said by a lot of people. I think I first heard it from Don Cheadle, not personally, but you know, mm -hmm. on watching inside the actor studio performance is something whether that's film or voiceover or whatever mm -hmm. if that's the thing you want to do truly 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 if there's anything else in life you can do that will make you happy that will put food on the table you should do that thing mm. and i don't say that to stifle competition i don't say that to rail anyone's parade it's just it's a really you know it's a hard job going into it but you don't understand how hard it is on so many levels. And I don't mean the actual work, like the work for the most part. And again, I've been lucky because I've done a lot of meaningful things, right? I haven't, yeah. I don't know if I've ever really taken a job just for a check, right? right. The work is so rewarding. The work mm -hmm. is so much fun. The work is so challenging. But yeah. getting the work yeah. is a job in and of itself and is vampiric and is mm -hmm. frustrating. And the only way yeah. to succeed is to actually find ways to enjoy those auditions and to 
find a way to not just live for the next job. And it can be really difficult, especially during this pandemic. I had a, I had a last minute audition for a a new project they're trying to do for a major network. And I was very happy to have the audition, but it's really hard to be creative Mm -hmm. now. And also, why are you giving me one day to prepare seven pages of dialogue? Like, really? (laughs) What's the rush guys? No one's, no one's going anywhere right now. Um, Right. And, and I am excited for how the business is saying it's going to change as a result of, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and the reckoning that they're having with the deep-seated racism and white supremacy of the industry. And I, 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 and I don't say that judgmentally, I say it factually. Yeah. Um, so the art is great, the business is yeah. shit. Mm. And you know, whether it's any of the $10 name people I've named during this podcast, like BD Wong or Lupita or any of those people, mm-hmm. And they're all great ambassadors. Like if you look at BD and Lupita in particular, they're, they're always on the forefront of social justice and whether it's mm-hmm. API or LGBTQ or I think I didn't say that right, LGBTQ. Um, yeah. Yeah. They're, all, they're all trying to do things to move the needle forward in positive directions. And that's amazing. And I think that mm-hmm. it is our responsibility, especially if you've achieved a certain level of success. But their success, yeah. their success stories are not even the 1%, they're like the 0.0001%, right? And especially like BD's been working for fucking ever, you know, and hopefully Lupita will work for him. And and me, I don't know what percent I'm in, but the fact that since 2016-ish, I really haven't had to have, good Lord, I can't talk today. I have not had to have a job that was not, somehow related to this, whether it was a TV show or narration or uh, a, a theater show. Yeah. So to work for four to five years, almost consecutively, that's also super rare. So, mm-hmm. you know, your listeners might know my name now, but they probably didn't when they tuned in. So, you know, I'm a quote unquote success. And yeah. you have to, I had to redefine my definition of success. Cause when I was in high school, you know, Robert Downey Jr., not then, because he was a mess then, but like what he has now, right. like that success and only that was success. But, but no, even, that, even, even before then, I mean, like at, at that time, he was still nominated for Chaplin. You know, yeah, for, yeah, so, which, yeah. Oh my God, that movie. Oh, wow. What yeah. a performance. He, he should have won. I he should have won, won the Oscar. I just recently rewatched that and man, that holds up. That's so yeah, good. I can't imagine he, he, it wouldn't. He was, he was he was he was electric. Him and Val Kilmer for Tombstone, they both should have won. Oh, yes. um, yeah. But but yeah, so I had a really narrow definition of success. And mm-hmm. am I where I want to be? No. Am I very appreciative of what I've done? Yes. Do I want more? Yes. Am I really glad that I'm no longer focused on the result and focused on the journey so I can appreciate what's happening and not like be crippled by ambition and come off as needy and desperate and all this other stuff. Yes. Do I wish I had learned that earlier? Absolutely. Right. Would I change a lot? I mean, maybe, but then who knows where I'd be now? Right. You know, I don't know if I'd be married to the person I'm married to. I don't know if I'd have the friends that I have. And ultimately as much as I want to be in a Marvel movie and I really do, (laughs) I wouldn't, I I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade my friends and my wife for it. 
I think I think it's I think it's only a matter of time before Marvel, you know, starts looking in oh. your direction. Oh, and, bless you, Kevin Feige. Are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm I'm not I'm not much of an authority, but at the same time, I mean, it's just like I honestly feel that uh, that that with the sort of drive that you have, I think that uh, it's only a matter of time. And well, thanks, uh, it's, it's, it's very much like, it's very much like what uh, Paul Schrader said, you know, said that uh, the only reason why people get into the arts is because they have no choice. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it chooses you. You don't choose it, man. Exactly. It's like, a, it's, it's like a beautiful parasite. It just wiggles its way inside you and you know, you fighting it only makes it worse. Uh, right. Yeah, trying to trying to not get that creative outlet out only just you know it it allows it to just kind of fester inside you and that's and, that's not healthy. Yeah, and I love I love um, I've done a lot of like guest lectures and going to schools and mm-hmm. I love working with people that are are starting out or refocusing, um, but also trying it and deciding it's not for you isn't a failure. Yeah, you know. Uh, if there's anyone out there listening who's like, oh, I, you know, I, I'd love to give it a shot. So give it a shot. And if it's not for yeah. you, it's not for you. And, and also, it's whatever level you want to do it at. If you want to do community theater, great. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. We need, we need that. We need right. theater in the communities. Do it. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're a children's theater person, like, it, it's don't let other people be the barometer of your success in the communities. Oh, amen. Amen to that, man. And where can, uh, where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, so I got on Twitter and Instagram early and didn't use it because none of my friends were on it. So, uh, I have a really simple handle. If you spell it right, it's just my last name. It's just Demerit, D-E-M-E-R-I-T-T. Mm-hmm. So that's Twitter. That's Instagram. Um, I have a professional Facebook page, which is William Demerit. Um, are there other things? No, that's really it. I don't do, I don't do TikTok. I don't do, uh, what, I don't do Twitch. I don't do uh, LinkedIn. I do LinkedIn, but like, come on. That's <laughs> yes. for business. I, yeah. I, 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 you know, I do. You'd be shocked. Under. You'd be shocked. You, you'd I be shocked at how at, at how much uh, how much how much uh, momentum LinkedIn has been getting. Like that yeah. and that and TikTok I, has been. I really... keep getting LinkedIn notifications, and I'm like, bro, no one's working. Why are you sending right. me notifications right now? <laughs> I'm not going to reformat my resume, LinkedIn. Like, leave me the fuck alone. At the right. Um, but I keep the notifications on because every now and again, it's like someone wants to be your friend who you haven't spoken to. Yeah. Like, oh, that guy. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And then, and then yeah. theoretically, I have a I have a show coming out on HBO Max called The Flight Attendant, but I don't know when that's going to happen. Right. Uh, it's with Kelly Cuoco, the voice of Harley Quinn in the new awesome. Harley Quinn show. And of course, from uh, Big Bang Theory and Eight Simple. And from Big Bang Theory, yes. Oh, yeah. Just give her whole resume. She's fine. She doesn't need. She doesn't need the plug. She's doing okay. <laughs> Kaylee's yeah. doing okay. Right. At least I hope she is. I don't know. Hopefully, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure she's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I can't think of a better example of someone who is on an Excelsior journey and is on the show Excelsior Journeys than William Demerit. It's been. Oh, thanks. Just, I thought you were going to say then Kaylee Kowalka. <laughs> no, I'm, so, I'm talking about. <laughs> she's got her own journey. Like I said, like you said, she's got her own. She's, you know, she's doing fine. You know, she's doing fine. But I mean, like um, the way that uh, the way that you had said that you have to basically kind of redefine your own uh, definition for success, that really, that, that really means a lot, you know, because there are too many people that are out there that are, that are so um, single-minded that if they, if they don't reach that highest of pinnacles, then everything else is a failure. And that's not 
That's not the way life works. That's not the way, that's definitely not the way that this business works. And if you're ever going to feel the sort of fulfillment that you've gotten that, you know, uh, from, from what you, from what you do, even from what I do, you know, from this little, you know, walk-in closet that I'm doing, um, it's, uh, you know, if you don't have, the, if you don't celebrate those accomplishments that you're, that, uh, that you're doing, if you're not your own biggest advocate, then no one else is going to be. Exactly. So, and it's, it's, I really, really hope that all of you have been able to take a lot of what William has been saying and apply it to your own desires, to your own journey. And I can't think of a better example of someone on an Excelsior journey than William. And so I really hope that, uh, that all of you have been enjoying this conversation. I really hope that you've all been taking as much from it as I have. And for William Demerit, this is George Saroy saying to all of you, ever upward, and I'll see you next week.